Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Kevin Dong, and thank you for joining us on Mac Emerge Podcast. Hope you have been surviving the cold winters of Canada or wherever you're listening from. I can't believe 2020 is here already, and our team is super psyched for the awesome content we have lined up for you this year. Keep tuning in every month on the first day to catch all the latest local and national and sometimes international med ed and emergency medicine updates from our very own McMaster Emergency Medicine. On our February podcast, we have an amazing lineup of guest speakers. First up, we have Dr. Michelle Wellsford, who Dr. Teresa Chan will be interviewing on the important topic of women in emergency medicine. They will be talking about the essential importance of women as leaders in our field and what we can do to empower our female colleagues. I think this is such an amazing segment and relevant to all listeners, regardless of orientation or where you're from. We also have an amazing brand new Teaching That Counts segment with Dr. Aleem Nagji and Dr. Teresa Chan, and they will be talking about the anatomy of feedback, why it is so integral to give good quality feedback to our learners. And last but not least, absolutely not the least, we finish off with their monthly resident corner with Dr. Joanna Dita interviewing Dr. Simon Fleming, who is a special guest for our Mac Emerge podcast because he's such a superstar orthopedic resident from the UK who does regular international talks and topics such as leadership, training, and culture change in healthcare. He's going to talk a little bit about bullying in our healthcare and what we can do to try to tackle that and what we can do to stay on top of it to make sure that bullying is not part of what we do on a regular basis. This is a great one to listen to, so stay tuned for the entire episode, and I hope you enjoyed the great, great content we have for you today and this month. All right, enough of me talking. Let's get to our first segment with Dr. T. Chan and Dr. Wellsford. Enjoy. Thank you very much for joining me, Michelle, in this segment. I'm really excited to have you. You've always been a mentor and a role model for me, and I'm, it's my privilege to be able to interview you for this podcast. So thank you very much for making time. For those of you who do not know Dr. Michelle Wellsford, let me just give you the rundown. She is Wonder Woman Supreme and has done so much uh, for us regionally. She is the regional medical director for the Center for paramedic education and research within the HHS, but like basically functionally as the medical lead for the base hospital for all the regions that we serve. And uh, she is a full professor of emergency medicine and medicine in general here at McMaster University. So thank you very much for joining me. Great, uh, great to be here and uh, thanks for the nice introduction. And uh, I think as always, uh, always a little embarrassed by all the, the things when people talk about us. That's very nice, thank you. Yeah. Well, it's really more for the show notes, so we can archive it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 awesome to have 
women role models in emergency medicine because I think we look nationally and maybe we're starting to see the rise of women a little bit, right? With uh, some of our colleagues taking chief jobs in the greater Toronto area, you're starting to see more female program directors. It is something that we are starting to see the emergence of women within a specialty that maybe was founded largely by men at a time when, you know, really most of medicine was men. But, you know, as someone who's uh, been... Um, a ceiling breaker, I guess, a glass ceiling breaker, <laughs> smasher, I guess. Um, I'd love to hear your perspective on what it's been like over your career so far and and whether or not you think there's been enough change or maybe do we need to move the mark more. I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of like the evolution of women in emergency medicine. Great. Um, yeah, certainly um, uh I did my residency in Toronto and uh, have now been almost 20 years of my career here at McMaster in Hamilton. And during my residency, there were definitely um, women leaders in emergency medicine, but not very many. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, and I did see them uh, in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we don't only look to uh, people of our own gender mm-hmm. with it for leadership roles. And so I had a lot of just fabulous, uh, you know, people that I looked up to that were leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, as you said, there weren't a lot of leaders in emergency medicine across the country. And even to this day, there's way more. It's fabulous. Um, but I still think that there are some women who have great leadership potential who are doing a lot of things that are free (laughs) they're volunteering uh unsung Mm -hmm. not necessarily known Mm -hmm. for all the great work that they're doing and uh that i think um in the future hopefully we'll hear even more from them and know about them more the uh, uh one of the things that i've found uh can be a feature of some women men as well but some women and men will occasionally not be s- sure of themselves enough to put their foot forward mm. for a title or take on responsibility. Might be willing to pitch in, mm-hmm. might be willing to help when there isn't a title. Um, and, uh, and those people, and, and there tends to be women um, in that group, um, they'll do great work, but they may not get recognized for it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I would say was, would certainly be true of, of me in the past, but not necessarily now, is um, I think we always have that inner voice that says, ah, you might not be able to do it, maybe somebody else is better. But in the, um, but in the past, um, that might stop you. No. And so if there's, for instance, if you're really interested in education and there's an assistant program director job at your university, Mm -hmm. I know people who who could do that job, but don't apply. Mm. Um, What they're waiting for sometimes is for somebody to tell them they could do it. Um, and, uh, and certainly that's the way some jobs work. Some jobs work, mm-hmm. some roles work by somebody reaching out and saying, I think you'd be really good. It's mm-hmm. about to get posted in a month. Please do. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're giving the, posi- the position no. to them. It's a fair process to go ahead and tell people that mm-hmm. you think would be good. Yeah. And I think sometimes 
Uh, I was waiting for somebody to reach out and tell me that, and I don't think I wait for that anymore. But I do know that there's a fair number of women and some men, there's sometimes they won't do it unless somebody has told them that they know they could. So what I've found um, in maybe in the last five to 10 years is that if I know a role is coming forward, that I make sure that I've talked to a few people about it, made sure both men and women that they know about it, and specifically that I think they could do it. And again, not to give the job ahead of time, not to be unfair, um, but reaching out and telling somebody, I know you can do this and you be good, uh, really helps with your self-esteem and makes you step forward. And I've heard over and over again the last few years that that's a key thing that some women need, especially in their first leadership position. Mm -hmm. um, and so one, you know, I'd, I'd like women to think that they don't need that. But knowing that, um, I think it's really, really important for all leaders, women and men, to make sure they that they uh, they're aware that there's some people that won't come forward unless you you know reach out to them, and I think that's important to do. And I think there's always some hesitancy from let's say established leaders that well, I stepped up, other people should step up too. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do people that don't step up do a worse job? That's that doesn't seem to be what I see. But uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think that's really important. And in fact, if you broaden this to, you know, um, this isn't just about women. It's yeah. also, um, it's important for us to realize that what we need in leaders is we need as much diversity mm -hmm. as the people they lead. Mm -hmm. So whether that's, uh, that's gender, race, ethnicity, age. LGBTQ. Um, yes, right? absolutely. So you know, we need the leaders to be representative of those people they lead, as well as in the communities that they lead. And I heard of a great project that was happening in, uh, I guess it was in California, one of the, the programs for their faculty. Mm -hmm. They wanted their faculty to be more representative of the community they served. And the way they did it, and this partly um, uh, is around women, and it definitely was about ethnicity in that area. Um, what they did was they actually sought out for their residency program people who represented diversity. And so I remember thinking like 20 years ago, thinking, well, if you then are looking for a woman or you're looking for somebody of a certain race, that then that must mean that you're taking somebody who isn't qualified. And that's not what they did at all. In fact, because they made it explicit, they just made sure they widened their search. Mm -hmm. They changed the criteria a little bit, mm -hmm. though. And so sometimes tools or scoring systems might benefit uh, people in a different way. So they mm -hmm. got rid of some of those, rewrote them, and still said, we need the best of the best. But instead, they searched more and they reached out. Yeah. And so they got the best of the best. And certainly they, the publication that they had showed that following residency, their residents were more diverse. Their faculty became more diverse because they stayed. And in fact, their publication rate was much better. Um, and following that from talking with a couple of the authors, it sounds like they feel that their teaching is better, that within the, uh, within the emergency department, it's recognized by um, their staff, but also by uh, their community. Mm -hmm. um, and they didn't get somebody who wasn't qualified. Yeah. And I think that's what's important about what we were saying before. It goes back to it a little bit. So if you've got a job posting for a leadership role, 
In no way should we take somebody who's not qualified. But that doesn't mean you just put it out there and not reach out. Of course you should reach out. And maybe it's reaching out a year in advance so people can get opportunities. Um, Look for the best, but make sure that the criteria you're basing it on is open and isn't specific and doesn't unconsciously, uh, uh, um, that it doesn't bring in our unconscious biases about who would be the best leader. Exactly. I mean... I always joke in the podcast about how we have to mention evidence-based medicine every podcast, and I've done it again. <laughs> but I think that we have to think about how we talk about systematic reviews. Right? We talk about risk of bias, right? Like, we talk about risk of bias all the time in our scientific work. We should be applying that same rigor to the other systems that we set up, right? Because if we know a systematic review can be biased, well, then sh- couldn't a selection committee be biased? Should, shouldn't we think about whether or not our... Uh, selection tool for our residents is biased in some way. And so I think it's important to think through the criteria and say, are there certain things that systematically exclude certain people um, or in you know this case of science, patients or certain pathologies, right? And the same thing here with leadership, maybe are we, cert- are we catering to a certain type of person? Let's say an extrovert. That's not a male-female thing. There are female extroverts. I'm definitely one of them. I'm in this podcast. You're, you know, maybe a closet introvert, but you present yourself as an extrovert, so you might be willing to step up. There are introverts that do very well in emergency medicine. They connect very well with patients. They are often the glue that holds our uh, business groups and our physician groups and our teaching faculty together. But they're not always the ones that are the most visible. But it doesn't mean that they wouldn't be a fantastic leader. They just might need a different call to arms than a random posting on some website. That's exactly. And what that brings up is an example that, uh, so I I can't quote the article, but of uh, finding that that some of this is gendered, that, uh, but of course it's not absolute, but that people who present themselves as, I know I can do this and are certain, even when they have absolutely no background, will often be chosen for a position over the person who has the background, mm-hmm. but says, I'm not sure that I'm going to be excellent, but I'm going to try really hard. Yeah. And how those people are viewed differently, even though the second person might have more experience and in fact might be a good leader. And, uh, and so I think that's what happens is we, we allow our inner judge sometimes to say, I think I can do this, um, but don't come across as, uh, as sure. And so we need to change how we select people yeah. and not just somebody who's overconfident yes. <laughs> without yes. the experience. Yeah. The Dunning-Kruger curve. I think we've learned that lesson <laughs> south of the border a little bit. But, you know, I think we've seen examples of leaders stepping up when maybe they didn't have all the qualifications or maybe any at times, right? And so yes. sometimes you can learn on the job. I think that there's, there's, there, there has to be a threshold for which you have to have some minimal qualifications and experience, right? Like you probably don't apply to be the dean of the medical school if you've never been a clinical teacher, like straight out of residency. <laughs> That's probably not appropriate. But should you aspire to be a CT director at one of our regional campuses if you've always had a thing for education, you get good teaching evals, you love going to the fact of stuff when it happens, but you've never actually held a position like that? Heck yes, right? Like that's the kind of position that we'd love to have you. And I think that that's where, for instance, especially in education, you can reach out to 
all the people here at both divisions of emergency medicine, both family medicine and medicine. And even if you're in pediatrics, although they don't have a regional kind of like presence in the same way. But if you're starting out as an educator, we've got lots of educators around here that would be happy to take you under their wing and give you some insights or at least just be a sounding board, right? So I've had... Um, a great uh, relationship with like Catherine Tong. She's one of our um, superstars at the KW. Yes. Uh, oh my gosh, she's everywhere, all over Twitter right now. Recently, uh, with uh, going to med ed conferences and live tweeting it, I love it. Um, but it took a little bit for her to get started, and um, part of it was that she reached out to I think John Sherbino at a conference sometime, and then she got involved with our clinician educator diploma from KW. So it's not restricted to here and. Now she's like a force to be reckoned with and she's like the faculty development lead at Kitchener Waterloo and it's fantastic, right? So I think there's a lot to be done and sometimes it's, it's, it's okay to say, I don't know how to do this yet, will you teach me? I think that's probably the biggest strength that I found at McMaster. Uh, to be quite honest, in emergency medicine is uh, is that collaboration that you talked about. Um, uh, we uh, I remember when I first started here, I thought I needed to do it all myself, and I didn't know uh, any better. And I hope that all our new faculty uh, and our established faculty know that hey, I'm interested in something, just reach out, uh, start working on project with somebody else. Um, yeah. But yeah, you reach out, and it's amazing the network, yeah. and uh, you know um, you're a large part of that, Teresa Chanzo. Yeah. You know, like kudos to you and, and your whole team uh, to be able to support people that way. Yeah, well, now it's Alice Chorley's job, so uh, <laughs> I'll just pass on the emails. You know, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, we're we're all a lot of us are actually available online. Um, I know that Alim Pardon constantly like. I I'm pretty sure there's a story that I remember. Actually, I remember seeing the tweets. There's a internal medicine resident who was complaining on Twitter how she was locked in a room because of a bat in her in her home, <laughs> and he like. DM'd her and I helped her fix it at like three in the morning. Uh, so like obviously we're like ha happy to help at all hours of the day and maybe some of us more than others. But I, I do think that like even if it's not till the next morning, if, if you ever have any uh, you know trouble or had wanted to get someone's opinion or help, I think that that's the kind of community we want to build. Excellent, agreed. Yeah. Um, all right. So. Women in emergency medicine is something that an initiative that is a number of people like we've got residents, we've got uh, junior faculty members, we've got people from PEM, family medicine, medicine, all different walks of life. Um, that's something we started recently. Can you tell a little bit about why kind of that came up and, and how the origin story of that uh, program came about? Great. Yeah, so the Women in Emergency Medicine group, uh, um, a lot of people very involved and uh, enthusiastic. And as you said, people from all divisions of emergency medicine and different levels of education and training and uh, places in their career. Um, we've been able to, to meet uh, several times a, a year. We've had meetings in people's homes or in a restaurant. We've had guest speakers. Just a great group. Um, the um, there's some things that are unique to women in emergency medicine that we don't want to sound like we're complaining, but they're common uh, things that happen. Um, and uh, this allows you to kind of get that off your chest. It allows people to uh, talk about uh, how to remove barriers, how to move on with things, um, common things that occur, raising families, uh, you know, um, as well as uh, consultants and all those, and just 
it's just been a great group and a really good way of connecting. Um, I uh, I often say like in no way does this have anything to do with uh, bashing men. Like yeah. this is uh, if anything, it's it's the opposite. We're often talking about uh, great advocates and allies, uh, um, people who would be considered he for she. And you know, we work in emergency medicine. We're really lucky. We've got just fa- fabulous faculty to work with. Um, and uh, but there's still unique things to to women, and it's mm-hmm. been uh, it's been great to have. Uh, uh, a way for our residents to tell us about things that they find that I was so surprised were still common mm-hmm. uh, 20 years later from my residency and yeah. and uh, um, and great to be able to share some wisdom. Yeah, I think that that's an example of a community of practice that um, in this case is filed under kind of a gendered banner, but I foresee there being a need for other groups too, right? Maybe people who are of visual, visible minority, or I know CAPE has a new LGBTQ group um, that is for support of emerged docs who are uh, identify as different sexual orientations outside of the heteronormative culture that we have. So I think that there is a role for not just the women in emergency medicine group, but there probably are other groups that would make all of us feel a little bit less alone. Absolutely. Um, and part of this was uh, uh, was started really um, partly related to the feminine group. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is a women in emergency medicine group that was uh, founded predominantly um, by American emergency physicians um, who, uh, who uh, similarly had common discussions and, and have a great website with fabulous resources mm-hmm. um, and uh, sharing documents and policies for their faculty and for their uh, staff um, around a whole number of things. And uh, they started a conference now. I think this will be their third year mm-hmm. um, in September. And so I know that uh, that uh, you and I went uh, for, mm-hmm. for the first year um, and last year as well um, we had actually I think we had nearly 20 people from McMaster go last Mm -hmm. year to the conference great conference uh, really good networking and discussion and they're really working on things that we discussed earlier about um, if you network and talk to people if there aren't enough women leaders Mm -hmm. in your region but you can talk to other people and get an idea of how to continue in your career. Um, So for instance, there were no women uh, professors um, and uh, at McMaster in emergency medicine, but just about anywhere in emergency medicine, you know, 10 years ago. And so being able to talk to people who've been there, done that, mm-hmm. um, find out about things that you can do. Um, you know, women um, uh, can often be uh, supporters and sponsors for other women. And so finding out what they're wanting to do and be able to say, yes, let me introduce you to the right people is really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, um, when we talked a little bit about sort of unconscious biases, you know, if the next position, the next leadership position or the next faculty position might be decided by, you know, uh, who's a great person to go out for beers with or who's a great person to meet up with and go for a game of golf, we need to think about doing that a bit differently. And so I find these groups are a great way of thinking about doing that a bit differently. Um, yeah. find uh, find um, a way to find mentors, sponsors, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and ways to uh, deal with unconscious bias. 
um, both that are gendered as well as that deal with, as I said, all kinds of other diversity as well. Yeah. I think it's very interesting because I think when it's unconscious, sometimes it's really hard to convert people over into thinking about what that looks like in a conscious way. It's very uncomfortable, right? Mm. And so I think that talking with other people at other centers who may have already had that awkward conversation Right. It's kind of like telling the emperor he has no clothes, <laughs> you know, like I think if you have high EQ and you've already got five other people that you've talked to that told their emperors they had no clothes, you'd probably be better versed to go and tackle that issue. Um, and I think maybe that's the moral of the story is that don't wait for the little kid to come and point. Maybe you as someone who's an advisor on the in crowd could go and network and find out how you might handle that a little bit differently. Well, let me give you like a, just a quick example of unconscious bias that um, and a way that we could deal with that. So for instance, if we've got, um, we're looking for new eMERGE staff faculty, maybe it's a leadership position, but maybe it's just who's, who's the next person you're going to hire. One of the things is we often look at people's CVs or the resumes ahead of time. There's actually a really interesting and good study, and actually it's been repeated, that has looked at when the name is on the top and how that name is interpreted unconsciously. Um, and that people, for instance, if that name um, has a certain ethnicity to it, that the, the way that that CV is rated is different. Mm -hmm. um, I can't, like, it's amazing, like, and it's probably me as well as everyone mm -hmm. else. Remember, it's unconscious. Yeah. So you can see where perhaps it would be hard to believe that if, the gender was different on that. It, you know, maybe it'd be hard for us to believe that we might choose to 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 look at it differently. But that's but, the, but that study's been done over and over again, right? Been. Like so, the same CV with Evan versus Eve, and all of a sudden, the reaction to that CV is different, right? Exactly. Like these are randomized controlled studies that are replicable and have been repeated over and over yeah. again, right? Yeah. So, um, and you know, I know as a as a. As a woman physician in the emergency department, we've all been there when somebody mistakes us. Perhaps it's for a nurse, uh, and perhaps that's gendered. Maybe it's just because I'm the one that's there. Um, but hearing from my colleagues of being, uh, um, so hearing of a person who is leading an international conference mm -hmm. and in the meeting room about to convene it mm -hmm. um, and is mistaken as the janitorial staff because yes. of their ethnicity yeah. and you know it's then that I understand that these unconscious biases um, how big of an effect they are mm -hmm. um, and when we understand them and by the way uh, on uh, the uh, there's a great uh, resource you can go um, on uh, on the Harvard website to do unconscious bias about gender yeah. about ethnicity and so on um, and in fact you know you can be the opposite you can uh, you can be biased towards Towards women and so on and so the, the point is to think a bit about these things do it for yourself uh, and maybe just question okay well there are ways to go about it so for instance if we're going to hire people let's take their names off the CVs at the beginning let's look at just the merits on that are written um, and uh, and then move forward with the next stage so I think there's things like that that we can challenge ourselves about our own unconscious bias and uh, and move forward to uh, to better equity and better diversity yeah. in our in our, in our groups well I think the other way to think about it is like um, so there's a new Netflix show called chef's line 
and they always have the judges be blinded in uh, because like I mean you can just put a plate of food out and you'll never know if it was the chef or the home cooks that they're competing against yeah. you know or the voice right where you hear the voice obviously you can tell male and female but um, I mean there's great uh, an original study was actually for um, one of the orchestras where they had mm. a blinded audition process where they actually had to take the shoes off of people because you could tell if it was high heels or if it was <laughs> or is uh or if it was um like a male kind of like a type shoe with a flat bottom um, but the high heels were being discriminated against implicitly again and so people were just listening to violins and they couldn't hear anything else the person was behind the screen and and uh and they picked a more diverse orchestra because of that so i think there are ways that we need to think about in more creative ways, right? And obviously the artists were the first to figure it out. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, we can follow along in medicine, I think, in some way. So it might be that you have someone administratively do a blinded, just like we do with our manuscripts, ask people to turn in a blinded CV. It might be that you have a top sheet, which has a spreadsheet of all your stats and numbers, if that's important. And uh, you, have, uh, you have that as the first run. And I think that it's also important to set your a priori criteria. So you're not trying to like jimmy your criteria afterwards for someone that you really liked. Give them a chance. Because I think that that's where bias is very rampant, is that sometimes we look at the pool and then we say, oh, but this person didn't get, uh, get an interview or this person didn't even make our cut. Maybe we should figure it out, right? And so I think that these are the kind of things that systemically might bias for someone, even though it's not against other people. Absolutely. I think that that is really important. And so the Department of Medicine, for instance, has uh, uh, Sonia Nand, who's a fabulous cardiologist, uh, has uh, is working on a number of things and has put forward that we should consider diversity, equity, uh, and inclusion as part of our hiring processes for our faculty. And so uh, having the explicit criteria ahead of time, as you had said, um, and sticking to that in the discussion. So not allowing the discussion to say, uh, I really like this person personally, I really don't like this person personally, sticking to your criteria. Um, because although they have to get along with the group and that can be part of your criteria, you need to uh, um, realize that it's the discussion not about the criteria that's where the unconscious bias can creep in mm-hmm. um and uh anyways she set up a great process and uh, we're going to start some of those things mm-hmm. um and uh, and go a little bit further i think in terms of blinding some of our uh, cvs all right well that's very exciting stuff so thank you very much for spending some time talking with me thanks so much for tuning in and i look forward to having maybe another conversation with you another time michelle thank you so much excellent thank you so much Tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing, rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts! Welcome back to this month's Teaching That Counts. Today, I'm joined with Teresa Chan to really talk about how to give feedback and the anatomy of feedback. All right, so this is gonna be a very teacher-centered thing. 
Um, I also think that any trainee or any person that wants to get better feedback should also check out this book from Harvard Business Review called Thanks for the Feedback by Stone and Heen. Um, it is a game changer and will change the way that you actually help others give you better, more usable feedback. But this is more from the frame of a teacher giving feedback. So, Alim, why is it that feedback is important? I think feedback is super important. And my favorite example of this is last offseason when Austin Matthews went and completely redid his NHL shot. And what he did was he got the world experts on this. This guy already possesses a wicked snapshot. And he went back and he completely deconstructed it and reconstructed it from scratch. Oh my gosh, that sounds exhausting. Yeah, and this is a guy who already has a world-class thing. So it's the same for us in medicine as high-performance, not athletes, but maybe mathletes, <laughs> who are kind of looking at our practice and saying, how can I get to that next level? And we've talked about the difference between practice and deliberate practice, just doing the same task again and again with no feedback. And we know the value that an, a peer who observes and gives us meaningful pieces of advice that we can change or improve on can really launch our practice to the next stratosphere. Wait, wait, so you're saying we should be doing this as faculty members for each other? Ooh, controversial, right? <laughs> yeah, so I, I do think that that's the case. I mean, I'm asking that question kind of facetiously because it is something we're working on. Uh, the Mac Emerge uh, CPD program is actually, so Continuing Professional Development program, is actually looking at to develop um, a coaching module about peer-to-peer -peer observation and feedback for our clinical teaching. But we're also looking to create some modules that you can do offline about other parts of your life. So whether you need uh, feedback about you know, how your academic work is going or your research is going and other parts. So I think it'll be really cool for us to all feel like this is something that can apply to us. So whether you're giving feedback to your boss or giving feedback to your trainee, I think that what we're going to talk about is actually super important. So the next time you have to do a 360 for you know, your chief or your chair, this is an opportunity to break out the skill set. But full disclaimer, do not use these tips on your wife. I tried them, it did not go well, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for your wife for bearing with us there. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about um, the first step, which is to be specific. So I think case specificity is really important. If you think about the cognitive psychology about how we learn, like we really need... Like you look at a three-year-old and the way they learn the world or even younger than that, right? Like I was hanging out with one of my nieces who's two, two years and a half, right? And she really explores the world by looking at, you know, that's a doggy. And then she'll see another doggy and she's like, doggy. And then it'll be a cat and we're like, cat, right? Um, she needs those specific exemplars. She needs to see the divergence. It's four-legged, but they look markedly different. But dogs are all different shapes and sizes and colors. Um, and so she needs to extract the, the, the goodness of what it is that we're trying to give her in the descriptions of these things. And when she says kitty to a tiger, I'm like, you know what? You're not, you're not far off, kid. You know, mm. it's about the size. And so like in a, I'm not going to fault her for that because she's creating that rule. I think that in the same thing with our learners and our colleagues, we need to be specific about what case we we're talking about. Sometimes it can be hard because... Um, we can't remember at the end of a shift. We're kind of like tired, exhausted. We've got 17 charts we have to do still. And the specificity falls away. But I think that um, that's why in the previous episodes, we've kind of encouraged people to get uh, the feedback out of the way earlier on in the shift or to create a learning receipt so that you'll have a cue to remember. I think it's important in the language that you use too, right? So mm -hmm. if you're going to give feedback, instead of saying generic things like, you know what, today your management plans were great, 
actually honing that down to say where were the management plans mm -hmm. effective and so this could be for example you know let's take Samantha the resident from last week um, you know who came in and saw this lady with chest pain and on discharge she gave her a prescription for a PPI but she noted that you know this patient didn't have drug benefits and so she prescribed a cheaper option for there right so I could use that as a specific example so that I could now say Samantha with that patient you considered her financial situation when giving this prescription and that was an excellent, appropriate management plan in that case. That tethers it to Samantha's mind, so she recalls that and remembers that better for next time. Yeah, it's about the semantic memory. So it's basically taking your feedback and using that patient, which already generated a memory, and just hinging onto that. And I think that's really powerful, right? Because our, our memory is connected in like a giant web. We're not like software. We don't just find and replace and copy and place, right? Like we actually have to construct meaning. And so if they were to constructed meaning by having this meaningful patient encounter um, and she had that very powerful situation where she had the history, then latching onto that is like key. And talking about memory, the narrative is so important here, right? Mm -hmm. and, and our memories remember things in that narrative sense. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the most iconic memories you have from literature or movies or films, the specificity is what grants it meaning, right? Yeah. And grants it believability, yeah. grants it buy-in. Yeah, I would say that's the idea behind the case-based, right? Like, so that's our next tip, which is make sure your, your uh, feedback is case-based because uh, we do need those stories. Um, when I say, um, if I said uh, a, a young woman is looking for a husband um, and her sister has a bad breakup with some other guy who's best friend with her, like you're like, what's she talking about? I'm like, so Pride and Prejudice, right? <laughs> and, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like Elizabeth and Darcy and yeah. Bingley. Like, you know, all of a sudden all of these specifics come up to bear uh, because I've just explained to you um, one piece of a big narrative that's in your head. Uh, for those of you who don't know um, Pride and Prejudice, I would say that this is quid pro quo for all the hockey analogies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I have to appeal to the diverse audience that yeah. we have. And so you might have a story. Or if I say Sleepy Hollow, yeah. right? Like you're going to know there's a headless person. There's something about pumpkins. I don't know. <laughs> like these are the kind of things that you're going to um, uh, hinge on. And so being case-based helps you capitalize on the narrative and the construct that's already there. I think it's also important that we're not blind signing residents. And so we've sort of talked about the anatomy of a shift in previous episodes. But one of the things is that right at the beginning, I let them know that they should expect to get feedback, both in a real time manner after the cases that they present and at the end of their shift. So that um, and then I also make sure that when I'm thinking about my anatomy of my shift in terms of me trying to get home on time so I can do my do the, all the things I like to do for the rest of my life, I make sure I set aside that five, 10, 15 minutes to have that feedback conversation um, so that's protected time. Yeah. So I don't know how everyone is uh, shifts work, but we actually have some reassessment time built into some of our shifts. Or usually it's like that transition point where you're like starting to like stop seeing the really complicated patients. Um, so one of the things I tried to do actually recently is to actually do my assessment then um, and have that's the great, training yeah. pull it up. And, and, and doing that, it's like seeing a one-touch patient in the rapid assessment zone before you need to. Mm -hmm. um, it's just getting that out of the way. So usually that's in the first three or four hours. And usually I've observed something within the first two. So if I get to do another encounter there, that's great. And so I think providing feedback at that point, um, creating a learning receipt, having a teaching pearl, there's another natural progression where you might just squeeze out five minutes um, amongst all the other things, but there's some breathing room. 
That's great. I do mine at the 75, 75 mark of my shift because that's usually when I'm hungry and I need a snack. Exactly. Snack and, time is a great right? time. So to snack do time is a great time to do it because we can sit down, we can do some quick feedback. It takes the amount of time it takes me to finish my yogurt. And it's a great way for me to remember to do it each shift and to build in time so that we're not at the very end of our shift struggling to say, oh, now we have to do a 20 minute feedback session. And for all of your wor- workaholic friends, it's a great way to get them to actually have the snack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then um, timely. So what do you mean by timely here? I think it's important that the feedback comes soon enough after an encounter that, like we were talking about with the memory, that the learner can then anchor your pieces to what has just been observed. But you also have to respect the emotional content, right? So if we just had a critical resuscitation where, you know, worst case scenario, a patient passed, do we really need to right away kind of rag on the resident and give them feedback? they'll be so shut down from an emotional point of view mm. that that feedback will be lost. So that's a good time to say, hey, go grab a coffee, take five. Mm-hmm. Do you need to decompress or talk about the emotional aspect of what you see? And then bring the medical expert and the content and the collaborator and all that feedback to a later point. Yeah. But you don't want it to be so far removed that it's you know two days later or at the eight hours later where you're talking about a case at the beginning of the shift because you're kind of too far for those neurons to, to synapse properly. Yeah. I think about it this way, with any really difficult case, whether they've been yelled at by someone or you've had a stressful emotional load because there's a bad resuscitation, or even one where you're just, you got the intubation, you're so like amped up, like you're like, oh my God, you need to calm down a little bit. Yeah. That that all comes to bear um, as to the timing of that feedback. And sometimes you want to hit it over the head with like, just, just reaffirm something, but do take a step back and say, is this the time or can we recap, re-encapsulate this later? Um, I think about a, a stressful emotional events, kind of like as if in Harry Potter, the Dementors have come by mm-hmm. and you're just like, oh my gosh, like my soul has been sucked out. And that's when they need to go get a chocolate bar. Yeah. Right? And so I think that's important to like just acknowledge that sometimes the timing is has to be timely, but it doesn't have to be instant. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is concise. And we have not been super concise, but uh, (laughs) I do think that that's something that uh, you want to strive to do. Um, If you drone on and on and on and people don't quite understand you, that can be a bit of a problem, right? I think for me, what I do is sometimes I'll take down all the different pieces of feedback that I want to give. And then I'll sort of take a moment myself and reorganize it to say, are there, you know, one or two big categories Mm -hmm. that we're really talking about? and that I have multiple examples of, Mm -hmm. rather than multiple different ideas. And that can help because then I can give one piece of feedback, but I can actually give two or three different supporting arguments for that. Well, that's very interesting. It's almost like you're doing a real-time qualitative study of that resident. You're kind of like taking some field notes and then you're like generating, okay, let's talk about communication. You yelled at a consultant, you like (laughs) hit on a nurse and you know, like you were late for a shift and didn't tell me. Yeah. I think there's a communication problem here and then labeling it, right? Not that that learner exists at all. I'm just (laughs) giving an example, right? It could also be in the excellent point of view where you might have a trainee who does break bad news really well and then goes on and just finesses a very difficult person that usually they have trouble with, that you have trouble with, and they just, that person's just like, putty in their hand and then the charge nurse who usually yells at everyone is just so pleasant and you're like I need to go follow this person around and figure out what their secrets are mm-hmm. um, and I think that those are the kind of moments where you can highlight when someone's either underperforming or just excelling at something and the truth of the matter is because we know there's imposter syndrome where people don't know they're good you may actually need to be specific 
and case-based about things that you think were really freaking awesome, right? Because a lot of the time, some of our trainees have been just beat down so much during medical training, uh, pre-med programs. They're always striving to be like 100% and always getting at 98. And they're like, what's that 2%? And our job sometimes is to say, look, you're 98% really good. Like, chill, but also know what you're good at so that you can keep that and maintain that. I think that that's a really good point, too, because the feedback has to be actionable, right? It has to be something that Mm -hmm. the learner can actually take away and do something with. And so, again, this kind of comes back to specificity, but it's important instead of saying generic terms, like be nicer, like you were saying to the nurses or be um, be better or be more kind or all these kind of large categories, breaking that down to say, here's a specific task within that. So so let's say you're dealing with an uh, agitated patient. Instead of saying to them, be more empathetic, you could break it down and say, in dealing with an agitated patient, one strategy you could use is diffusing the scenario by acknowledging the time that they've spent waiting for you. So that actionable content is more specific, but also gives the resident uh, something concrete to do differently next time. Yeah, I think that that's a real challenge sometimes because you, as an expert educator, expert f- clinician, you just know that there's something wrong there. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, like that's where we get stuck sometimes. Is how do we reframe it into something that they can do next time? And so if you're working with a rural college resident, you might pull down those milestones that we've talked about and that can break down that complicated task that you just intuitively do, right? Um, you may need to have those memory guides just to break it down for you. Because um, I would say that's similar to when you have a decision rule, right? I don't think this person needs a CT head. But here, this is a rule that helps you break down all the things I was thinking of when I was trying to make a decision as to whether or not this person needed a CT head. That's great. Right? So, so what I do when I have a learner and I'm like, oh, man, I'm not really sure how to start this conversation. I just start with the learner self-assessment. And yeah, so that's a great I love it. turning it around to the learner and say, look, at the beginning of the shift, we set these objectives. How do you think that went? Yeah. Breaking down the emotional aspect of it, breaking down the content aspect mm-hmm. of it. And especially when you get those learners with great insight, you get really rich conversations. This also helps me sometimes where I thought I was going to have to give them a ton of feedback on a certain issue. And the learner just nails it in the self-assessment. And they, they were clearly aware that this was an issue for them. They're able to come up with their own learning plan. And I'm just really there as a guide to help navigate them and kind of mm-hmm. round out the edges of it. But it helps me from having to feel like, oh, I'm going to have to give them all this, quote unquote, bad feedback, or where I'm going to have to kind of break down something they didn't do as well as they would have liked. Yeah, the challenge is when someone doesn't have insight. Any thoughts on how we handle that? So I think the learner with no insight, it helps where you've already set expectations because then it gives you an anchoring point from where to talk about. And it helps you have a conversation that's specific and actionable and timely. It helps you frame that so that you also know what to do with that learner. Because sometimes you also have those learners where you're like, oh, wow, there's so many different things that didn't go well today. What should I pick from that list? And coming back to your objectives is a good place to start. And maybe that's a learner who you end up having to flag and follow along more closely or intervene or be in touch with the program to say, this is someone who needs a little bit more coaching and support through. And sometimes when you're a single teacher in a big group of teachers, as we all are actually, as emerged physicians in all the various teaching sites, um, you actually might have an opportunity within a shift to do some things to actually help mitigate that. So if you notice that someone's just really bad at something, Uh, early on in the shift, you might want to make that switch gears and make that your learning objective. And so one of the things that you might want to do is actually show them how you do it and have them come along and take a history um, and listen to how you did it. So and then debrief that and point out different parts of it. 
Because I think sometimes we just send our learners to see their own patients, but what they have to see is they have to do what you do and spy on other people, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said, you, you get that feedback from other teachers. You watch how they do something. You, you steal parts that they do. I think we should probably do that for all parts of our practice, not for our teaching practice alone. But I love like listening to how someone cracks a joke, right? Mm-hmm. That was one of the b- biggest, uh, coolest things I did was uh, one of the blocks I followed, one of our really funny, really astute clinicians who's like enough... Uh, further along in practice. His name is Paul Miller. He also does palliative care, so he definitely has all the, he has like high emotional intelligence and he's just one of those guys that like makes the room light up. And when I picked him as a preceptor, one of the things I did, I saw my patients, but I also kind of spied on him when he saw his. And it was very revealing and I've learned a lot of tricks. So Paul Miller, if you're listening to this, is a (laughs) shout out to how awesome you are because I did think that he used humor in a very, very humanistic and yet, um, empowering way for the for the patients and I thought I learned a lot from watching him so I think that that's the other thing too is to add that into a repertoire of feedback might be to say hey you know what you do it this way why don't you come and see how I do it and then they can give you feedback and they can participate in that arc as well that's great because you've created the natural segue to the meta on meta mm-hmm. asking feedback on your feedback right exactly. and so really creating that opportunity for mm-hmm. in a safe environment for the learner to give you feedback because yep. that's how we're going to improve yeah and I think that if you are in a group that overlaps shifts, another way you can do that is to ask a colleague um, to come and maybe just a little bit early or if they were awkwardly in the room and the learner didn't want them to leave or didn't need them to leave and they overheard your feedback, you know, proffering uh, a question to them and saying, hey, he, what did you think of that? Was that as awkward as I thought it was, <laughs> yeah. you know? Or was it, you know, I think that went pretty good. What are your thoughts, you know? And, and I think there's some great advantage to having that kind of like collegial aspect of soliciting that feedback. I think when you're first starting and experimenting with some of these techniques, this is a helpful tool and it's been great for me to really sit down with the learner and be like, so we set the agenda for you here. This was my agenda today. So I was working on making sure my feedback was more actionable today. Mm -hmm. How did that go for you? How did this technique work for you? What were some of the challenges you noticed? What's one thing I should do differently with the next learner I have? And I've gotten a wealth of information Mm. that's been really helpful for me to change how my on-shift teaching goes. Yeah, for sure. I had some fairly honest feedback from a trainee. Clearly, I created an aura of trust. She just let me have it. <laughs> and it was great because yeah. it changed my teaching practice. So yeah. I won't say who because, but this person was like, you tried to teach me too much. Mm-hmm. And I was like, fair. And I can see that. Yeah. She's like, you can't, you can't do that to me again. I'm like, okay. So we worked on it and the next time it wasn't like that. So That's all we have for this month's Teaching That Counts. Tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl to up your game. Special shout out to Krista Dauhos, one of our family medicine residents who's played an integral part in making all these lovely infographics that we'll have for you in the show notes. And thanks to John Sherbino for his mentorship. See you next time. everyone and welcome to Residence Corner. My name is Joanna, your host. I have a fantastic resident bite for you today. So I just finished listening to Dr. or Mr. as you prefer to be called, Simon Fleming, who is a trainee orthopedic surgeon and a PhD candidate at Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry. If you haven't heard about it, then obviously you haven't been on Twitter and I'm not sure what you've been hiding for the last five years.
He is a previous president of the British Orthopedic Training Association, but more important, he's the brain, the mind, the face behind the anti-bullying campaign that started off in 2016. Simon, I'm going to let you introduce yourself first, and then we'll go back right into it. Uh, hi. So, uh, yeah, I'm an orthopedic uh, registrar. I'm currently doing my PhD in medical education. And um, when I finish with that, I'll probably have about 18 months more training to go. And then I probably should pass some exams and get on with yeah. being an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, right. Now, you obviously took a detour from that. Um, and Simon has done so much work in medical education and many different projects. And he's involved in so many of them that he and is so passionate about medical education that he decided to do a PhD in it. Guys, a PhD after med school, after becoming, or sorry, going through residency training or the equivalent of it in UK, which is almost a decade is my understanding of it, and then a PhD on top of it. Sounds like you're in for some punishment, but sounds like you're very passionate about your work. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a glutton for punishment. I, I, I kind of got into the PhD because the, the more I read, the more I liked it, the more I learned, the more passionate I was. And it just got to a point where... I kind of felt that for me to have the roles I wanted and the conversations I wanted to have to be credible in those communities, I had to kind of really demonstrate that, you know, I just wasn't a guy who'd done a bit of Wikipediaing or whatever. I had right. to kind of show that I, I had some chops and some, something to say. Um, and so I started my, my PhD. But again, I'm sort of atypical because my PhD is qualitative. So I'm a qualitative orthopedic surgeon. So there's not many of us out there really. Or, no, not or, exactly. Or like any of us. Yeah. <laughs> or any of us. That's yeah. probably a better statement. Simon has done a lot of um, interviews. He's got a TEDx talk. He's, got a, he's done a lot of sort of campaigns, rather. Um, but I'm going to quote something that you said in one of your um, one of your blogs, rather, recently, where you, you commented, with great power comes great responsibility. And it's probably one of my favorite lines, I have to say, from my like, you know, uh, Google searching and Twitter stalking and all the other things that I did prior to setting up this podcast. Tell us a little bit about the campaign against bullying and how this all started. Yeah, I mean, that that quote obviously is from Spider-Man. Well, it's un his Uncle Ben, right? Yeah, that's but right. But te well, <laughs> technically Voltaire said it first. But, but, but <laughs> Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, right? Which makes me sound again like a lot smarter than I am for an orthopod. But... <laughs> but but what it actually comes back to is um, I'm, I'm very aware of my privilege, right? Mm -hmm. I'm very aware that I am a male, white, heterosexual, private school educated, rugby playing orthopedic surgeon. And to be fair, there's, there's nothing I can do about that. Like I can't help how my parents raised me. I can't help any of that stuff. But once you realize that you're, you're, you have certain opportunities and certain power that other people don't have, you should do something with it. Like mm -hmm. I have a voice and I should do something with it. So, so that's kind of where this all came about. So I was uh, involved in the British Orthopedic Training Association. And it was when I was a, a vice president of that organization that the organization, our, our president at the time, decided to do a, a census to kind of um, look into what our membership really thought about all kinds of things. Because we wanted to know for certain that we were representative and that we weren't kind of one of these ivory tower echo chambers that certain organizations can be. Um, and, and one of the bits that I pushed to have in the, in the census was, was around behaviors. And, um, so we kind of asked, uh, two questions about three things. So we asked about bullying, undermining and harassment. Mm -hmm. Um, and we gave some definitions because those are pretty emotive, uh, words. Uh, so for us, bullying is about power and about silence. 
It's about me using my power to make you do something you do or don't want to do. So that's that's when your boss uh, turns up just before you sit down to have lunch and goes, come to theatres. Or it's when you're walking out the hospital and um, you're made to stay another five hours because someone implies that if you don't, they'll tell your boss or you won't get to clinic or you won't get an assessment. It's power. Undermining's a lot more insidious. Undermining is when you make people feel small and worthless. It's the, I'm big, you're small, I'm smart, you're dumb, and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, A good example of undermining is, is, you know, is what a lot of specialties do to emergency doctors, right? It's where the emergency doctor calls you up with a referral and you down the phone say, have you been to medical school? Have you read a book? That's not a real referral. Have I you even? Ha- I think I'm having a like, deja vu right now. Right? Did this just happen? Yeah, right. I like. I, yeah. I might have just said this in my talk, right? But but that's so that's that's undermining. Undermining is when you make people feel small and worthless. And then harassment is around the the um the protected characteristics that we have in the UK certainly that are mm-hmm. defined quite clearly in law, like gender, sex, age, disability, pregnancy status, and the like. And we asked people in our census, um, "Have you experienced these things in the last four weeks?" And have you seen them ever? And we asked about, have you seen them? Because we feel that actually a lot of it is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. If you are in an operating theater and you see a behavior that is just completely unacceptable, completely intolerable, the the attending and the registrar are talking to one another like, like, you know, they're in the pub or that there's no one watching and they're talking in sexist, racist, homophobic terms, Mm -hmm. or, or the attending is just tearing into the registrar, just, just ripping them a new one. If you're watching that, either you're going to just think this is disgusting. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be part of that world, which is why we have a problem with recruitment and retention, not just in surgery, but in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Or you look at those behaviors and you as a medical student or an intern, you go, oh, that's what I have to do. Those are the behaviors I have to role model to fit in, to be part of this community. And so it perpetuates that kind of cycle. And we gathered this data and and yeah, the, the, the numbers we got were off the chart and we just, we had to do something. Mm-hmm. We had to do something. And so September 2016 at the uh, at the British Orthopedic Association conference in Ireland, we we presented this data. And from that came the Hammered Out campaign. And, you know, and mm-hmm. then it kind of all, es- it really escalated from there pretty, pretty rapidly, to be yeah. fair. What a cold shower that must have been, right, for all the audience members and maybe for the rest of the community. Yeah, I think... Because we we had a pretty packed room, it was a it was, we'd we'd managed to convince a lot of people to come to the to the <laughs> session, and um, I think it was a shock to a lot of people. Some it was just a shock that we were saying it, like yeah. how dare we? Yeah. And some I don't I honestly don't believe they perceived there to be a problem. Right. Um, which sort of fed into the narrative we had, which was like you can't see that these behaviours either exist or are harmful, whether that's harmful to patients or harmful to residents. Um, so we presented it there and, and, and we made a big noise and, and then it kind of evolved from there and we started to develop kind of more around strategies for how we were going to change culture and, and recognizing that unfortunately or fortunately, you just can't do it overnight. It's not possible to do it overnight. It will take generations, plural. It's a, it's a 20 year job to change culture and then a forever job to keep it changed. Right. And you alluded on to this a little bit earlier on, but how often do you feel like we, you were met with resistors? How frequently did you hear the expression, well, suddenly everyone is being bullied, undermined, or harassed, or this is not my place, this is, does not happen in my place? Um, yeah, so we, we get that 
quite often. And mm-hmm. it depends on who you're speaking to. Right. So one of the big pushbacks is, of course, you know, that it's, it's swung the other way and that trainees cry bullying. Right. Um, and, and it's not untrue. Um, it's become a word like resilience or anything else that's been sort of weaponized by some people. And that's part of the work when you're changing culture is to sort of set a tone, mm-hmm. set a baseline. Because as a resident, I want to be told when I've done a bad job. I want feedback and I want it to be constructive. Um, but there are ways of giving feedback and there's ways of telling people to do things that are maybe not kind per se, but you don't have to be mean when you do it. You don't have to be unkind. You don't have to make people feel terrible just because they've done a bad job. Um, You know, it's reminding our trainers that we are human beings, that we are adults and adult learners. um, And that, and and sometimes again, they come from a good place. So an example might be if, if a, a complex trauma case comes in and I get asked by or suggested that I do the case because I'm a senior registrar and I look at it and I've read up about it and I go, I just, I don't think I can do it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's for me. I don't think I've got the skills or the knowledge or, you know, I've been in research for too long. And my boss might say, hypothetically, like, just get on with it, right? Now, actually, what, what they mean, what they're saying internally is, Simon, I know you can do this. I believe in you. I know that you've got the skill set. I know that you're filled with self-doubt, but I've got your back. And I'm going to be in the coffee room, but I want you to start and I want you to push yourself. Mm-hmm. I want you to push yourself safely, but I want you to at least start. But that takes a lot more time, a lot more effort, and a little bit more insight and emotional intelligence for that boss to recognize that that's where I'm coming from. So what comes out of their mouth is like, just just do it, just get on with it. And so, of course, then I feel small and insignificant when I'm like, but I can't, <laughs> uh, I'm not good enough. And it's, again, it's just about creating a different cultural philosophy where you say things like, it's not, you know, it's not wussy, it's not weak to just reframe how we have these conversations. Actually, it's how you get more out of people. Um, Private industry have learned that, like the military have learned that. The military have learned that you get more out of soldiers by not screaming at them. Actually, you get more by treating them like human beings with some respect and, and like adults. Sounds like a very fine balance between tough love and coddling, but maybe finding a better way to express it or maybe finding a better way to teach it. Yeah, and, and you've hit the nail on the head. So the nuance is really difficult. Mm-hmm. So there's obvious stuff that's obvious, right? If someone says something that is both racist, homophobic, and sexist to me, that's obviously not okay. And actually it's very easy for anyone to be like, that is not okay. Mm-hmm. The nuance are the subtle things, right? Is it is it undermining if while criticizing something legitimately, you make a little joke at my expense. Like, well, you do want to be a hand surgeon, so it's not surprising you can't fix a hip. Well, it depends. It does depend. It depends on our relationship. It depends on whether we know each other. It depends on your body language. Mm. But there is a bit of me that's like, did it need to be said? Actually, did you need to just have a dig at me? Like, it's because again, most of us as trainees, we hold ourselves to a pretty high standard. Like, if I've messed up and you're telling me I've messed up, you don't need to tell me how badly I've messed up. Like I know. Right. Type right? of personality. Right. You don't, you don't, yeah, right. You don't need to also make me feel stupid or insignificant or small. Mm. But the nuance is the tough stuff because the obvious stuff is easy, right? Mm. If I make a sexist joke about women surgeons, that's easy to point out and be like, that's not okay. That will not stand. We do not tolerate that. If I make a joke about the fact that, you know, well, it's not surprising that gynae are calling us, they can't do proper surgery anyway, right? 
it's not, it's just not kind. And we know, we know from a lot of work that these kind of incivil behaviors, these unkind behaviors affect patient outcome. They affect doctor cognition. And, and like last year, bullying behaviors were shown to cost the NHS about 2.7 billion pounds in complaints, sick days, uh, loss of staff, errors, all that sort of stuff, everything put together. Like these behaviors that might seem kind of insignificant are huge. The consequences go beyond. Yeah, absolutely. Financial, healthcare, all the rest. Absolutely. So beyond the person who's getting bullied potentially, right? It has massive implications. Massive implications. And probably what leads to the significance of the type of work that you've been doing. Yeah. How have you seen it sort of expand from there? I mean, we talked a lot about the uh, campaign against bullying that you guys started in 2016 um, and all the work you've done around it. But how has how have you taken what you've done and sort of open it to the world, if I may put it that way? Yeah, well, social media played a, a huge part in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that I'm just really loud and happy <laughs> to talk a lot. Um, and and people have run with it. And and I'm just really proud of all the different communities that have run with it. And and I've always said that it's it's not about me. I'm just happy to be someone on a podium who makes a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. Um, loads of other organizations are doing amazing, amazing work. And everyone's running with it in their own way. So if you look at the Irish Healthcare Service, the, the HSE, they've introduced Cut It Out, which unsurprisingly is very heavily linked with the work we've done. They, they you know, mm-hmm. they've worked with us. You look at the Edinburgh College's Let's Remove It campaign. You look at um, the emergency doctors in the UK have the Call It Out campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, there's work going on now around gender equality and gender equity. And, and I'm not saying for any second that, that you know, this is all down to me. It's, it's just the fact that all of these things combined have created this amazing culture, this real zeitgeist, which means for the first time ever, really, lots of people are willing to not just speak up, but do something about it, whether that's start a culture change campaign or start a Google Docs with female speakers on it or start a gender pay gap. is doing that. Yeah, right, exactly. right. Start a gender pay gap workshop, whether it's the Anti-Bullying Alliance in the UK. All these, all these little campaigns are all feeding off one another. And, and the challenge is to make it non-ego, non-partisan, non-political. It's not, it's not going to make you brownie points. It's just recognizing that the change you're bringing about is bigger than you, bigger than your organization, bigger than whatever. And and it's been kind of fun to sit back and just watch that yeah. kind of happen. And and every now and then, like I said, people send me a nice tweet, like you did some good work and that's cool, but it's it's not what it's about. It's about spreading the word and yeah, making some change. Yeah, like small it's a, change, starting a small change rather. Well, that's the point. And that's and that's kind of the, the keystone of my talk that you just had to suffer is is that actually is that actually it's pretty it's pretty tough to change the world right. like that's you know that's politician talk i'm going to change the world right what you can do is you can change you and by changing you you role model and most of us don't realize how influential that is and and i don't just mean residents right there are final year medical students who are like i've started doing some of the stuff you talk about and the, the first year medical students are like, I've noticed that you're nicer to me now. And that's the thing is you forget, most of us forget that when you were a medical student, interns were gods. Like, wow, an intern, wow, right? So yeah, you role model when you're an intern. And if you're role modeling within your, and you speak to the nursing staff and you speak to your colleagues, in fit, then they role model too because, and, and it, 
that personal change is one of the few things that you can do that can actually have a huge, huge impact because we work in such varied teams that if you are setting a tone as a doctor, you can change hundreds of other healthcare professionals' outlook on things. And then, you know, it's, it's like a pyramid scheme for behavior change. And you're winning at the top because you're having a better life because you're kinder, which means your life is better. Your yeah. patients do better. Your colleagues like you. Everyone's happy all because you've basically become slightly less of a dip. And it's, and it's not like it, it seems so simple to say that, but actually it's quite hard work. Mm -hmm. Like it's hard work to recognize that you've just raised your voice in a way that probably just isn't okay. Like mm -hmm. you wouldn't speak to your friend or your partner like that, but it's okay to what speak to a nurse or a colleague like that. And it's even harder work to realize it, stop yourself, go back and go, I'm really, really sorry. I think I, I, yeah, I, I think I just behaved. And especially again, when there's that power thing, like going back to a medical student and being like, I'm really sorry I spoke to you like that. I don't, I don't think that was particularly kind. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of, I owe you an apology and a coffee. And um, I'm just really like, that's a big deal. But if you can start doing it, it has a huge impact on not just you, but that person as well. Because number one, they're like, wow, that's how I want to be. That's who I want to be. And often they don't wait to change. They're like, I'm going to be like Dr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so because that made me feel really good just that they noticed I was upset and said something about it. Or So these personal changes can have huge impact. You've said so many good things in there. I don't even know how to unpack all that. Um, particularly, I want to focus on a couple of quick things. One, the personal change that you're referring to sounds like it's probably one of the few things that we have more control over than some of the other things in medicine, right? And you got to start small to make big changes. The second thing that I want to talk uh, to you more about is, and we talked a little bit uh, about this offline, is a practical strategy that you'd recommend for our listeners on how to act next time they see someone being bullied. Because you're not always the person who is receiving the bullying or doing the bullying for that matter. Sometimes you're just a bystander and maybe there is a culture of, I just don't want to get involved, but maybe sometimes there's small things we can do to help it. Yeah, there's a lot of work around bystanders and, and the kind of catchphrases are things like, you know, the, um, the thing you walk past is the thing you accept. Like mm -hmm. if whatever you're willing to tolerate is what is what you're willing to let slide. Um, Sometimes you can intervene and sometimes you can't. Mm -hmm. I would say that if you can't intervene, and sometimes sometimes it's also there and then, sometimes you need to let a bit of time pass. And I don't mean like three weeks. I mean a couple of hours or a day because sometimes it's just not appropriate. Sometimes it is. If someone is just you know screaming at someone in a corridor, there are loads of techniques you can use. Even if it's just like, oh, hi, prof, we've not seen it. And you just kind of break their stride. Yeah. Um, one of the good techniques I either encourage people to use or encourage their allies to use is the Vanderbilt cup of coffee model. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about. Right. <laughs> so, so Vanderbilt cup of coffee model is great. What they've shown is, to all its sense and purposes, um, if you want to have a difficult conversation, and you've got to remember, again, a lot of these people just don't know. They're not bad people. They just don't know. Um, their opening gambit is they suggest a cup of coffee. So you've got to remember that that means I say to someone, look, uh, could I just, could I buy you a, a Starbucks, right? Could I buy you a, a flat white? So it's not in my office. It's not in their office. It's not minuted. It's not in a calendar, right? They're not being summoned. It's, can I buy you a coffee? And you sit them down and you have a conversation with them. 
about their behavior, how it makes either you feel or potentially if you're doing it for someone else, how it makes someone else feel. And there's good evidence that the majority of people will change their behaviors on the basis of that one conversation. However, what they then showed in their, in their work um, is that if they don't, you need to have an escalation policy where the next conversation involves someone more senior and some sort of remediation. And then the next conversation after that, again, involves someone more senior still and like further training and, and kind of a suggestion of some sort of punishment if, if things don't change. And the conversation after that has to be a kind of sudden death. Like we've had all these conversations and you're still not changing. Like what is wrong with you? You need to change or your job is right. uh, at risk. And what they showed at Vanderbilt, to all intents and purposes, is at that stage from tens of thousands of, of interventions, they found that there were only about 60 people out of their 60 odd thousand that they did. And of those 60 people who wouldn't change their behaviors after those four interventions, like 20 had had pathology, either intracranial or psychiatric pathology. Mm-hmm. Because actually, if if multiple people at multiple levels of seniority have had multiple conversations with you about behaviors that are not acceptable and you will not change, at some point, you just have to think that maybe that person is not good for your organization. If you accept that all those behaviors we know are affecting patient outcome, recruitment and retention, resident performance, wellness, all of that stuff, um, at some point, you just have to go, they're probably not good for this organization or our patients, even, even if they are the world's best pediatrician or the world's best whatever, because actually they're not the world's best if their behaviors are not acceptable, because deep down, they're probably having less good outcomes or affecting the outcomes of those around them. So they're, they're good, great, but everyone around them is doing less well because of their behaviors. So the Vanderbilt cup of coffee model is is my go-to for for difficult conversations. Right. And it's got a really good evidence base as well, which again, when you're trying to change clinicians' minds, anything that's got an evidence base, they're going to buy into it. It's more credible than like, you know, Simon right. says, right? But if you can give someone a reference and be like Vanderbilt cup of coffee, they're like, oh, okay, I've, that's a paper on PubMed. I'm aware of that. Right. So next time you're in a difficult situation, you yeah. feel like you've been bullied, harassed, or mm-hmm. undermined, maybe consider... Yeah. Going over and talking about it over coffee yeah. in the right and time, exactly. right place, right circumstances, of course. And if you don't feel comfortable doing it, try and find Get an ally yeah. and be like, you know, I don't feel I can talk to Dr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so or Nurse So-and-so for whatever reason. Like, even if you just might not feel emotionally up to it, it might not even be a power thing. But would you mind having a conversation with them? This is what happened and I really appreciate it. Perfect. Now, to summarize a little bit what you've said so far, and I know I've spoken to you a little bit about this offline, on, off the podcast, you've mentioned a lot about how um, this is all about change and we've got to start somewhere. And some of the analogies you've used in the past in your previous talks is how we used to have people smoke indoors all the time in the hospital next to a patient in, a, in an ICU with a ventilator. And we're so far away from that now. It's almost crazy to think that that was reality just a few years ago. Same thing with the driving analogy, drinking and driving analogy that you've used offline. Where do you see, or rather, what do you see the end point of this being, if there is such a thing? Well, I mean, I mean, the, the aspirational end point is, you know, a culture free from bullying, undermining, and harassment. Right. But I'm also not insane. Like, that's not going <laughs> to happen, right? It's like saying my dream is that no one will ever drink and drive. Um what I would like to see instead is a culture whereby it's very uncommon that it's the outlier and that when it does happen, it is societally acceptable 
for those behaviors to be called out, discussed, remediated, as you like. So the perfect example is, if you look at the drink driving metaphor, if I have a really rough Monday, have a couple of bottles of wine with dinner, and then I go to drive home, someone, and it might not be my partner or my friend, it could be the waiter, it could be a stranger in the in the restaurant will say, um, do you want to get an Uber home? Like, have you had too much? And actually, most people don't get angry. They don't get defensive. You're like, oh, you know what? I, I probably have had a bit too much, sorry, right? And they don't feel like they're being a busybody and I don't get angry. And it's just okay. They've just They've just pointed it out to me. But equally, if you get done drunk behind the wheel, it's zero tolerance. Like, thanks for playing. You're off to court. And that's what we're looking for, is a culture whereby these behaviors are, are uncommon. They're the exception, not the rule. That is societally entirely okay to turn around and call these behaviors out, whoever's doing it and whoever you are. And that if it does happen, it is acted upon in a way that is not normalized, not tolerated, because we know that these behaviors just cause harm. Absolutely. Simon, thank you so much for being here. Thanks again to everyone for listening to our podcast. We're extremely happy and proud of the fact that Mac Emerge podcast has been going strong for the past 12 months, and we could not have done this without our loyal listeners. We're always looking to improve our local reach so that we can continue to share our amazing accomplishments amongst all of the regional healthcare workers who work hard to provide care to our patients, improve research, and help educate our learners. Please keep listening and sharing our podcast to everyone you know and if you're interested in getting involved or want to share an idea for a podcast, please shoot us an email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. Pretty easy, right? One of the things we want to get your input on is a systematic review of our podcast and how we can improve our content and delivery of information to our listeners. We are formulating a very short and quick survey and distributing it to people to make sure we can bring it the best to you and to make sure that we can continue to improve. I know everyone loves surveys, but if you can participate, it'd help us a lot in making our local podcast better. Stay tuned for this. We will be making it soon and sending it out in the next upcoming weeks. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. I hope you really, really enjoyed this month's episode, and we will see you again next month for some brand new content. Ciao. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge Podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out! <laughs>